And then I look at the door that was white and there was a hole in the door and I taste the, the gunpowder, the chalky residue in my mouth. And I smell the, the powder as well. And I look down and I see this grayish, blackish, whitish smoke coming from my shin. And I look at my partner and I said, I was shot. Hey, how you doing? J-Man here, and thank you once again for having it locked to the Launchpad podcast. Have a very special guest here. Number one, Lori White. I want to say thank you for your service. Uh, she's a retired RCMP officer. She's also a public speaker, and she's also an author of a book. An Officer Down, Steps Back Up is the book title, and that has to do with, I won't say too much because I'm going to blow it, but basically, uh, you showed up at a call and you were shot. And are you the first officer to go back to duty after being shot? Is that correct? Not after being shot. No, um, other people have been back to duty after right. being shot. But I think as a leg amputee, certainly within the RCMP at that time, back to regular general duty policing, I think I was. Okay. So no one has ever had their leg shot off and then gone back to active duty. Not here in Canada that I'm aware of. I don't know. I mean, when my situation happened, it was kind of almost pre-internet time too. So mm -hmm. some of the facts maybe weren't necessarily available at the time, but it is believed that maybe I was the first one with an artificial leg anyhow. Okay. If that would have happened today, you'd have a TikTok right now and a bazillion followers. <laughs> <laughs> so she's been awarded the Governor General's Award, Meritorious Service Medal. A Medal of Valor from the International Association of Women in Policing and a Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. She does not like talking about those types of things. She's not one on, on awards or rewards, uh, but truly, uh, I have so much gratitude for people that put on the uniform, first responders. Uh, my brother is a police officer, and I truly mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you uh, so much for your, your years served. Uh, and of course, just the the courage alone to be able to go back to active duty after having something so traumatic happening. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that sentiment more so now, even that I'm retired. So that thank you for your service phrase really is meaningful to me. So thank you. Oh, no problem. So I think that it's such a difficult time for someone to be a police officer, more so now uh, than ever, especially with what we had happened over the course of the pandemic and everything that happened right here in the nation's capital. And I would have to think that you're probably really happy to be looking at this uh, from the outside in opposed to having to have gone through this yourself on active duty. I'm so grateful. I have many friends and, and colleagues, of course, that are still involved in policing. And I'm just very grateful from a personal perspective that it didn't um, and it didn't impact my life in the same way. So I really took that as a way to remind myself not to, to judge some of the things that people are doing and the choices people are making, because if it doesn't really impact me, I really don't have any business taking a stance on something is really what I believe. Mm -hmm. And to the person that gives police officers a, a difficult time, and I've had this conversation with my brother on a number of occasions, and I, I remember when there was a standoff in Ottawa and people were expecting police officers to just walk off the line or just to not show up for work. You know, so for, for you being on that side or have having been on that side to maybe explain maybe the psychology that's going through an officer's head that's out there. Number one, I'd like to remind people that these officers, whether you think they should be dropping their batons or not, they're putting their lives on the line each and every day uh, for us. And, and I agree with that, Jason, like, 
we run into situations when other people are running out. We mm -hmm. joined up in this profession not to get rich. We don't get rich as police officers. It's just not what we do. We signed up to help people and we signed up to help uphold the laws. We don't make the laws. And I think sometimes the general public forgets that piece is that we don't stand there to prevent them from doing whatever they're doing. We're there because we're called to help. Mm -hmm. We're called into action and that's what our job is. So we have to put our personal situations and our perspectives and our opinions aside a lot of the times. It's not, that, that part is not part of, um, it's, it shouldn't be part of our response. It's very difficult because there are lots of times where I've gone into situations where I've disagreed with things um, and, I, and I haven't really felt comfortable making some of the decisions that I've had to make, but you have to do the best that you can with what you know at the time. And we signed up to help people and we signed up to help uphold the laws. And if that's what we're assigned to do, that is part of our job. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think any of those police officers out there ever expected in the entirety of their career to be facing what people faced at that situation in Ottawa last year. And I was so grateful I was not heavily involved. Mm -hmm. I know some people very closely who were heavily involved. And it's a, it's a very difficult situation on every level. Right. And now let's go behind the badge a little bit uh, and explore this is with COVID, everything that was happening in response to your PTSD from, from being shot. Uh, it was very interesting when we were talking earlier in regards to like, everyone just thinks like they're the ones that have the problem and never are we thinking about the person that puts on that badge and what's going on in their life. So how many people would not know that you are someone that had become an amputee because you were shot in the line of duty trying to protect people uh, and then having to deal with uh, this silent killer, as you explained it, if maybe you wouldn't mind going into a little bit more detail there. Yeah, and I don't mean to be dramatic in, mm -hmm. in using that phrase, but what I do know is at the very beginning of COVID, nobody really knew what we were facing. Certainly mm -hmm. I didn't anyways. And, mm -hmm. and so maybe I'm being too general by saying nobody knew, but I certainly didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I like to believe that most people really didn't know what we were facing at the time. There's a lot of upheaval, a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation, um, a, a lack of clarity in terms of the messaging that was being sent out there. Mm -hmm. And it, it did not help the situation. I don't know what could have been done differently. So I'm not here to, to talk about that. But what I can say is that I've spent my entire adult life. I mean, I was shot when I was 28 and I was diagnosed with PTSD shortly after being shot and, and losing my leg. And I was shot by um, a suspected sex offender and my triggers for PTSD. I'm very open about them. I'm open about talking about loud noises. I hate the sight of balloons because when I got shot, it sounded like a balloon popped right behind beside mm -hmm. my ears. Um, certain visuals, certain smells, certain sights. I'm hypervigilant. I have a lot of safety routines and rituals that I need to deal with every day before I leave my house multiple times. Um, so I know all of my triggers. I'm pretty aware of those. And I've had couple decades now to kind of learn how to manage those and how to navigate them to the best of my ability. And so when COVID hit, all of a sudden now, not only was I facing the regular PTSD triggers that I believe are lifelong, I don't believe that they ever go away. I think they flare up and they sort of subside with the different situations that I face in my life, but I'm pretty good at identifying and navigating those in a, in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. But when COVID came, now, suddenly it wasn't just something physical by, and by that, I mean, 
something that another person's going to do to me. I've spent two decades, you know, worried about other people and what they could possibly do and what the dangers that those people could possibly bring to my life. And now all of a sudden there's something that you can't see. It's invisible. And at the beginning, there was a lot of fear. Um, I think in some respects, and for many people, there still is. And so that really took my PTSD to a different level. And I did not handle it very well. I will say 100%. It was a very difficult time for me. And I think that um, that lack of information and that, that triggered heightened PTSD level that was sustained for a really long period of time, it took its toll on me as well. So it was, you know, for, for two and a half decades, it's been a person. Person's going to be responsible for, for creating danger. Historically, that's what my life has shown me. Other people are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, there's some invisible thing in the air that can be equally dangerous is really the messaging that was, that was conveyed at that outset. And so that was a real struggle for me. Okay. Thank you for going there with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, no, thanks for asking me. It's been difficult to articulate to, to many people close to me in my life. And, um, and I, I can only say it in that way that I just explained it to you to really try to help other people understand that I know that a lot of parts of my PTSD are really difficult for other people to understand. I know that. I know that my stockpiling things and, and um, my inability to see the future, that some of the things that I have to do to kind of give myself a level of peace, um, it's difficult for other people to understand. But, um, and, and so this is just no, it's no different, really. It's how my mind works. And so I just hope that that can be appreciated. Mm-hmm. So let's go back a ways <laughs> uh, to when all this happened. I can actually wait till you're done. Sorry. No, I I forgot. I can edit. I can just wait. (laughs) (laughs) My dog. (laughs) I'm like, what did I do wrong? (laughs) Is she, did I trigger her? What's happening? No, not at all. My Uh, dog is finding something. Sorry about that. All right. No worries. Uh, (laughs) As soon as I'm about to get serious. I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's go back to that night. You are on duty and you get a call for a suspected pedophile, I believe, correct? No. Well, no. Yes. Yes and no. So I had been investigating um, this suspected sex offender for a few months. Uh, So he had already actually been to court on one of my charges previously, about two months prior to when I actually got shot. And so that first appearance was in September. And after that, I feel like uh, some of the other young victims were getting a little bit more confident coming forward because they knew that somebody else had been coming forward. So they felt a little more confidence doing the same. And so the file kind of grew from September till November. And so November 27th, 1998, I was with two of my partners and we were going to execute a search warrant at his house and to arrest him and, and seize some, some um, paraphernalia and some cu- computer equipment and things like that from his house. And I was standing on the right-hand side of the door into the carport. It was a townhouse complex. And one of my partners was sort of to the left of the door. And our third partner was around the back of the unit. And it was probably a row of maybe 10 houses. And it was maybe the seventh one. So it was just in the middle of this row. Wasn't an end unit or anything like that. And all of a sudden, I heard a loud pop. And it was like a balloon popped right beside my ear. And I couldn't really hear. It was like a loud rock concert. You know how when your ears are just vibrating and and the reverberations in your head. And so it was a very instant disconnect from the world, it seemed like. So this sound and this vibration, this shock in my head. And then I look at the door that was white and there was a hole in the door. 
and I taste the, the gunpowder, the chalky residue in my mouth. And I smell the, the powder as well. And I look down and I see this grayish, blackish, whitish smoke coming from my shin. And I look at my partner. I said, I've been shot. And he said, what? And I, I said, I've been shot. And he said, well, lie down. So I, I lay down on my left side because it was my right shin. And he quickly looked and he, he said, um, you've got one bullet hole to your, to your right leg. And he went on the radio the, to the dispatcher and he used the code that no police officer ever wants to hear. And it's called 1033. Um, 1033 means officer down. It means, means it's an emergency. Everyone drop what they're doing and, and go. And so he said, we have a 1033 here. And I was that 1033. And he quickly grabbed me behind my gun belt um, on my waist and, and the collar of my shirt. And he dragged me around behind a, a vehicle that was nearby for, for safety. And so chaos ensued. And um, I could hear more sirens in the ambulance. And uh, I, there was a rapidly growing pool of blood. Um, it was just, it was a lot in, in a very short amount of time. But what was the weirdest about that moment was that all my senses kicked in before my brain actually realized what happened. Wow. And so what's the first rational thought uh, that comes through your mind when, when you hear that code 1033, because it's almost like they're speaking, you know, like you have a child in the room and you're like, he doesn't literally listen all the time and this and that and then someone's talking about you and and you're right there and you know exactly what's what's happening you know it's I've wondered about that before because I don't know that I actually was ever I don't think I ever heard that code before that I mean I only had two and a half years service and right. I don't recall that ever hearing that so it was it was an eye-opener and a shock in the moment even though my brain wasn't really functioning in in a the right way. I mean, some of the thoughts that went through my mind in the next four hours before I lost consciousness were just so random and, and silly. When I look back and, and have those memories about what was happening around me, it felt like things were happening to me, not, not, I wasn't really, they were, they're happening around me, I guess mm -hmm. is, a, mm -hmm. is a better way to, to put it. It just, I felt like I was just a, 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 a body in the room or something. I wasn't really a participant, I guess is maybe right. how it felt. Could you share with me maybe one of the more profound thoughts that you had? And then one of the, I can't believe I, I thought that <laughs> when yeah, there was potential that I was going to pass away. Okay. Totally. Here's two. Well, mm -hmm. the one profound one I would say is that in my mind, if I could blink, like I had to focus on something really small because mm -hmm. I had no control over anything. And so for me, trying to retain some control was critical. And so it was my blinking, because if I could blink, that movement in and of itself was evidence that I was alive. So I was really hyper-focused on blinking. So I remember doing that, I don't know how long, but I remember for a long time, to me, thinking I've got to blink, I've got to blink, even though my eyes didn't really feel like they were cooperating. So that was a sign. Okay. And the other thing, one of the other dumb, dumb ones was that where I was shot was a place called Kitimat and it's in Northern BC. And my best friend was posted to Coquitlam, which is outside of Vancouver. Yeah. And I remember when they were making arrangements for me to fly down on the medevac to go to Vancouver, which obviously was a serious case because they were flying me out of Kitimat to go to a trauma center. But in my mind, I was like, oh, here's her phone number. It'll be really great to see her. So I tripped out <laughs> her phone number thinking, give her a call. I'm going to be getting a free trip down to Vancouver. How stupid is that? Wow. So that's obviously mm -hmm. just like coping mechanisms, right? You're exactly. Just Wow. Okay. So what's next? So now you're, you're being flown to, to BC. 
And well, I'm in B- I was in BC. I was just, okay. um, in Northern BC. Sorry. So they're flying me down to Vancouver. That's no, okay. Um, I, so they flew me to Vancouver General Hospital. And somehow I, I know that I was conscious for about four hours, but I was definitely not conscious when I arrived at the hospital. And when I uh, woke up from what ended up being quite a lengthy surgery, they had spent about eight hours trying to restore circulation to my foot. So they had taken chunks of vein from the inside of my left thigh to try to reestablish circulation to my right foot. But after, you know, multiple attempts and uh, hours in surgery, they were unable to do so. So when I woke up very groggy and obviously heavily drugged, I was given the news that my leg had been amputated and I just, I couldn't even wrap my head around that. I mean, it just seemed so foreign. The word Mm. just didn't even resonate in my head. And in fact, I I didn't look at what was left of my leg for, for many, many days. Okay. And so what's that first thought? First thought is, uh, well, I can't look and I don't know what that means. And I have no idea what that means for my future. I mean, I was 28 Mm -hmm. and I had two phys ed degrees. I was an active person. I was a fitness instructor and a skating coach. And, um, I just, I, I could not wrap my head around what that might mean. Right. Now, were you single at the time? Were you with somebody? I was very casually dating a firefighter slash paramedic. Um, right. And he had accompanied me on the air ambulance, which I was very grateful for. Okay. I knew the relationship was not a, a long-term one. It was very, but I was so appreciative of the calm demeanor. And he was the one who actually had to give me that, that news. And so he'll forever hold a, a, you know, a special place in my heart for that because he really did help me through a really devastating time. So I was grateful for that. Right. And now this may be a little bit of a bizarre question, uh, but I know that there's a lot of people that have gone through trauma, injuries, things that nature, and it's very difficult for them to uh, move forward with, with somebody else. Did you find yourself thinking like, wow, I'm, I'm not a complete person anymore. I'm not good enough. Nobody is going, you know, to want me things of that nature. Absolutely. That's it's you're so right. I haven't been asked that question, but you're so right. I mean, I hung on to that relationship, even though I knew if you would have asked me even the day of, you know, is there a future here? I would have said no. Mm -hmm. But because his presence was so wrapped up in that devastating life changing moment in time, you you do you kind of hang on and you wonder if there's something more that can be salvaged and and sustained over time. Um, So it was a difficult breakup when it did happen. It was not. it was not unexpected, but it was, it was more challenging than it would have been at a different phase in my life. Let's put it that way. Okay. So now we're at the point where, I mean, you're looking at what is no longer there. Um, you have to come to grips with the reality that this is going to be the rest of your life. And I'm assuming that you had to go into an aggressive rehab. Is that something that happened right away? Or were you struck by, uh, I can imagine a heavy depression? or an anxiety. Yeah. The, I think my situation was very high profile and given that it was 1998 and kind of, you know, the social media and the news world on the internet was not nearly the same as what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a very high profile situation and I was inundated in a, in a good way, but also in a, in a way that distracted me from some of my realities. And so I did a press conference and I had a couple more surgeries and procedures to kind of debride what was left of my, my leg and the tissue and the bones and the gun fragments and all that. And so, or the bullet fragments. So I think, you know, I was in hospital for probably close to three weeks, I think, before I was released. And 
it was surreal really in there. The pain was excruciating. Um, and that was just the sheer physical pain, the, the psychological pain. I really don't know that I had much to, to really even talk about as far as that went in, in those early weeks that really didn't set in the psychological piece didn't really set in heavily until slightly after it was more about when I was released from the hospital and had to start facing the world. So when I got released from the hospital, I went back to Brockville and, and had a bit of an early kind of Christmas with my family but I was so heavily drugged still and unable to get the, the pain under control. And then I returned to, um, to Vancouver in January to start rehab. And I'll never forget when my mom was moving out to Vancouver to be my full-time caregiver. Cause of course I, I couldn't do anything for myself. And we landed at the airport, took a taxi to our new condo that we were going to be living in. And we pulled up in the taxi and I look at the front door of the condo and there were 37 steps up to the front door. I have one leg. (laughs) It was, it was a lot. It was a lot. So before we started recording, we're talking about our, uh, our affection for swearing. And so I'm going to drop one right now. Like at one point, did you think that fucker who shot me? Like, when did that, when did that come in? Like, fuck that guy. I still feel that way. Okay. I still feel that <laughs> yeah. way. <laughs> I say, I, yeah, it's, it's fucked. Like it really is. It's been a lot. Like I, uh, he, he, there was, people always ask me this and I'll go right there because it's going to come up anyhow. And, and mm-hmm. the guy who shot me um, ended up in a standoff with my colleagues that day and he killed himself. And so while suicide is never, ever the answer, because I myself mm-hmm. shortly after moving into my condo with 37 steps up to the door. Mm-hmm. Um, I fell into a deep, dark depression as well. And I was actually angry that I lived and I wanted to, I wanted to die. I was, mm-hmm. I was really frustrated and, and angry and bitter that that bullet hadn't hit me somewhere else and that they had saved my life because I really felt like I would have been better off dead. So I'm fortunate now that many years out and, and even, you know, shortly thereafter, really in the whole big scheme of things, I'm grateful I didn't succumb to that, that darkness. Because, um, so while I do want to say that that's what ended up happening to him, I I will always say that suicide is never the answer. Um, And then certainly having the personal experience too, um, it it, it changes things. It changes your personal perspective on it. Okay. And when do you find that you turn the corner? When did the healing start happening? Not just physically, obviously, but psychologically. I don't know that I'm ever healed. I think mm-hmm. I'm a lot better and I think I'm a lot more aware of my issues and, and I'm a good advocate for myself. But I think that the darkness was really intertwined. It was it was the, the psychological pain, but it was the physical pain too. So I couldn't get the physical pain under control. The phantom pain was an absolute nightmare. And that's so hard to even wrap your head around the concept of, you know, your your limb that's no longer there that's causing you this excruciating pain it was burning it was searing it was like a, someone was sawing my leg off like there were just there were these shock feelings it was just it's so hard to describe and yet it would wake me up multiple times a night and that so I think for me the the healing everywhere really started in earnest when I was able to get that phantom pain slightly under control because I think I think the pain was so severe that it left you lying around more so. And it gave you more time to think. And it gave you more time to wallow in all the what ifs and the poor me's and the why me's and all that. So I think that both of those things really came crashing down at the same time and really contributed to that dark phase. 
So I would say that once I started to slowly get a little tiny bit of independence um, is when I could finally start to see a little bit of hope. So that was a couple of months after moving to Vancouver. All right. Now I want to save like the rah-rah stuff for people to buy the book (laughs) (laughs) and find out the happy ending. And I know that you speak a lot on PTSD and I've done shows on PTSD. I was in the Ottawa Valley. I was next to uh, the Petawawa base and I played on the softball base team, even though I was just a radio announcer and I saw what it was like for people to do tours and come back. One of my good friends, Brian at the time, he was not the same, the same person. And at that time, uh, unlike today to where, uh, there's still a stigma that you're a pussy. Uh, you know, if you look for help, I think, especially being a male, you know, because it's about the bravado and I'm macho and I'm okay. And, and to have ignored the problems that they were having psychologically and the physical, like violent manifestations that I was seeing, as well as in their uh, abusive language, uh, to where some of the misconceptions uh, that people might have about PTSD, whether or not it's they have it themselves, maybe haven't identified it or in a state of denial, or quite possibly... Um, the triggers and the ways that people behave that maybe other people don't understand that aren't familiar with PTSD. Yeah. You know, I think you bring up an interesting point there and I'll never forget um, probably 10, 15, more than 10, maybe 15 years ago, I, I spoke at a conference and I was nervous about this conference because it was to a group of a large group of supervisors. Everybody in that room was senior to me. And being vulnerable and standing up in front of a crowd of people who definitely some of them will have some impact on your career progression and standing up there and being vulnerable and telling about all your darkest days. It's a lot. It's very difficult to, to talk about um, things where there's a potential repercussion that's going to come back to me. And so myself and another uh, male colleague were speaking about PTSD and and I've been talking about it for 20 some years and it's, it's, we're doing better now, but it's been 20 some years. Um, first speech I did was like 1999 or early 2000, maybe. So this big, tough, like emergency response team guy had dealt with this situation himself. He wasn't physically injured as far as my recollection goes. Um, so we were the two kind of like people that were talking about our PTSD issues and talking to management about how they could better navigate, you know, supporting their, their members. And afterwards, I'll never forget overhearing somebody saying, oh, that so-and-so male, what a brave, courageous guy. Like what a, what a cool, um, you know, guy to be able to get up there and share his story. But that Lori, she's just fucked. Wow. Yeah. And I thought really, I got no leg here. So I mean, if you're talking about significance about the impact, like the PTSD, I'm not going to ever gauge and say someone's worse off or better off, but I also lost my leg in that situation. And I don't know what it was that made him be a hero and me being, me be a weak, you know, incapable person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the sentiment often too is from the general public, certainly not from my colleagues, but you signed up for this. I mean, didn't you know, you, you had to expect that this kind of stuff was going to happen, but we didn't sign up for this part. We, we didn't sign up to see some of the most horrific behaviors that human beings can inflict upon each other. We signed up because we're caring, compassionate people who want to serve our communities. Generally, that's who does this job. 
And so for people to try to um, kind of downplay it and almost insult us by saying that we signed up for it and we should be able to just buck up and be stronger and tougher and better. Um, it, I don't think anyone gets out of this job entirely unscathed. That's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you can unsee the things that I've seen. And I, can't, I didn't even work, say, homicide for 15 years or something like that. My issues are, are obviously my own. And, and I think there's a cumulative effect. In my situation, I'm very, I don't know if it's fortunate or not. Mine were really linked to my shooting. But there are other things that happened afterwards that really raised issues. Like I was dealing with a pedophile. Then all of a sudden I have kids. So at a different phase in my life, I'm looking at what a pedophile actually is in relation to obviously the impacts on kids and the two that I love the, the most in this world. So I don't think that, I don't think the PTSD thing, while you can deal with it in, in a certain phase of your life, I think that it comes back and it impacts you at different times. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important piece too, is because the healing is, is kind of up and down. We can, we can get to a really good place and then we can have a slump again, and then we can get back to a place where we're healthy, but it's an up and down and it's a constant navigation process for our, our lives. Um, I think one of the other things too, you talked about the military and one time I worked closely with several military guys and we were talking about some of the stuff that they had encountered when they were in theater at different, you know, deployments that they'd had. And then of course my shooting. And one of them said to me, you know, Lori, I found it really, really interesting because he says, when we get deployed, we kind of know who we're against. Mm-hmm. We're deployed and we, and we know kind of who, who hates us and who's our enemy and who are, who are our allies. But when you're a police officer, you don't know that. It could be your next door neighbor, could be, you know, someone, it could be anyone in the community who, who hates you. And that was really very powerful statement to me mm-hmm. because the sacrifices the military guys make, as you know, well, they're, they're enormous. Um, and so it's just that mutual appreciation that we have for the sacrifices that we each make, I think. And I think that, um, that really, uh, that really struck home with me. Yeah. And for someone that might be in a person's circle or family, loved one, etc. to where you think maybe they're suffering with PTSD and you're you're not sure is there a best way or some way a way that you would recommend that maybe you can have that conversation with that person and help them find the help that they need there are many resources out there now but i, I know that it's difficult because when you're in dark places we always say you got to advocate for yourself, but when you're in a dark place, you can't, we just don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you don't have those coping skills. You feel like you're alone. You feel like you're being a burden. You're feeling like um, maybe you're crazy. You're losing your mind. Often PTSD will manifest itself in drinking too much anxiety, depression, you know, all kinds of substance abuse. So those things and before I was diagnosed, I would say that some of those things really were very much a part of my life. And I was going down these rabbit holes because you're looking at, well, I can't sleep. Well, I better, I must have a sleep issue. So you go down the path of getting sleeping pills or whatever. And um, sometimes you're not coping very well. So you have four rums when you get home from, from work just to kind of numb the, the pain and, and sort of escape the stress. 
um, the anxiety and, and those rituals that I, I mentioned, I didn't really know what that was. I just thought it was a personality characteristic. Um, I didn't, I didn't really associate it to the PTSD, for example, the same kind of thing I kind of alluded to before was the stockpiling. I couldn't understand why all of a sudden when I had kids, I had diapers and clothes for like four years down the road, not diapers, but clothes for four <laughs> years down the road. And I, I would have like so much stuff. And what I finally realized when I started to get treatment was that what I was doing was it's that inability to see the future, that, that um, impending sense of doom and that planning for when you're not there, which sounds so sinister and, and sad, but that's how at the base level I was operating. It was survival mode. And so for me, I had to prepare for all those, those things and those possibilities. So while it doesn't make sense to other people, I look at my bank account, like, why would I have spent, you know, a hundred dollars on diapers in sizes too big for my kids right now? It doesn't even make any sense. Like, why do I have so much food in my pantry? But it was kind of that weird stockpiling. It gave me some sort of sense of peace. I can't really explain it on the other way. RESP is the same thing, you know, planning for my kids' future in terms of, you know, their education funds. Like there were all these things that in and of themselves seemed, I could, I could justify them and, and make logical sense out of why I was doing it. But when you actually get to the root cause of why you're doing it, it's kind of scary. Right. And so how would someone have been able to help you then or have that conversation with you? Yeah, I think compassion, I think empathy, recognizing the behaviors and, and really realizing that sometimes when, when you're in flare-ups, the, those behaviors become almost more um, critical and more important. Like I, I know that when I'm not doing as well, I, I obsess more right. about, about those things. And so right. I wish that I would have had somebody to be able to calm me and to be able to, to take me to, to treatment. I didn't seek counseling for quite a while because I was in, well, I wasn't aware of what even PTSD was until I got diagnosed with it. And then it was mm-hmm. actually kind of a relief, but there are resources out there. There's so much online. Um, so you can do your research and figure out like there's support groups, there's, there's counseling, but it's mostly in your inner circle. It's more about compassion and empathy and laughter. You got to right. laugh. Is what I can do for someone that I think might have PTSD is to be compassionate, empathize, and try and keep that person in uh, a high vibration. And then potentially say, I think maybe you should see somebody. Well, it, it can only come from a place of love right. because people get defensive. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think that, uh, having, having the ability to ask questions in an empathetic way is critical because instead of saying like, why the hell would you buy, you know, a hundred dollars worth of stuff or judging some of the, like, do we seriously have to turn the car around and go back to the house to make sure that the garage door is down <laughs> when they already checked it five times? Yes. Instead of being um, angry, help calm me and help me um, maybe even force me to articulate what it is that is driving me to, to, to make sure that I have to go back and ensure that the garage door is closed. You know, okay. having to articulate it actually helps bring me down and kind of frame my thoughts and go, okay, yeah, I am kind of being a little over the top here and stuff. But asking the questions in a calm, loving, non judgmental way is helpful. Okay. And now to the book. Um, I lost my mother six years ago. I'm sorry. And oh, thank you. And I started to write a book. 
I don't have the due diligence that you do to actually finish that book. How long did it take you to do the book though? It took me 22 years. So you still got lots of time. Okay. Yeah. So I'm already <laughs> ahead of the curve. <laughs> so what brought about the book? Like why was the timing so imperative when it was, uh, why was the book written and what do you think someone's going to get out of this read? And it's called 1033 An officer down steps back up. So I think that back when I was in the hospital, one of my brothers, I have the note. That's why I just looked up here. I have the note that sits on my, um, on my desk. And he had given me a little journal with a little note in there saying, you know, someday maybe you'll make this into a book. And, and I started to, to journal, I guess, if you will back at that time, trying to chronicle things, but I think that it wasn't with the idea of having a book. It was more about trying to keep track of things because I was having such a difficult time concentrating and I still do. And I know now that that's a PTSD thing, but helping myself keep track of stuff by writing it was very cathartic and therapeutic and helped me really frame my thoughts. And writing's always done that for me. So while we jokingly talked about writing a book back when I was in the hospital, I did always come back to the same kind of document whenever I was frustrated and when I was emotional about various things that happened in my life. And I would just kind of using it, use it as a dumping ground for, for helping me gather my thoughts. And every time I kept thinking, maybe now's the time, maybe I should sit down and, and revisit this. It just, I would look at it and be, no, it's, it's not like there's, there's nothing here. There's no context. There's no, there's no um, flow. And I don't really know why I would, what, what, what this would look like, what a final product would, would actually look like. When I retired, I retired officially January, 2020 and COVID hit just in March. And I ended up obviously with a lot of time at home, you know, kids being at home. And that's when I really started to take another look at it. I had had some frustrating times leading right up to my retirement. And so I had a bit of a time and distance, I guess, from my career. And when I took a look at what I had written, I went at it with a new sort of vengeance, I guess. I get very hyper-focused on things. When I tackle stuff, I'm very um, committed. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time looking over the stuff that I had written. And I went at it with a new purpose, looking at my life and my experiences and what I'd written through a new lens. And when I finally got it to a place where I thought, okay, I think, I think there is something here. I'm gonna send it to an editor sent it to an editor that I didn't know because I didn't want anyone that I knew knowing that I was actually doing this. So I went to an editor and I said, listen, if this is something that I should bind up at Staples and leave for my children to read someday when they're older and want to understand me a little bit better, I want you to be 100% honest because if that's all that this is, then I am relying on you to tell me that that's what it is. And fortunately he got back to me and he said, no, Lori, you've got a really good message here. And I think that with some editing and that we, we can definitely do something with this. And so that's exactly what I did. So I went, I was able to finally look at it. I get, um, I guess through that different lens and I was really able to address the tone and the tone was what I was always lacking. So for 22 years, I didn't have the tone, right. And I finally felt like once I was retired, that was my time because I was no longer part of the organization and I was able to have that distance from it and get that tone right. Right. So and I think what freely. people would, yeah. yeah. And I think what people will get from it is that they're not alone. Um, hopefully some reduced stigma around PTSD and physical disabilities. And I hope, I hope like hell that I can humanize the badge and people can actually see the person behind right. the, the uniform. Well, Lori, I think you did a fucking fantastic job doing that.
Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So if people want to find your book, where do they go? Online's the easiest. Um, There is a store in Brockville that carries it. And I know uh, some of your audience is definitely there. It's called River West Co. And it's in downtown Brockville. But for the most part, I would say Amazon or Indigo Online are the easiest places to get it. Okay, well, I'll make sure to get those links from you. And I'm going to put them into the description below. And as always, thank you to my sponsors above. And Lori, this is even better than I thought it would be. Your transparency is phenomenal. Uh, Obviously, uh, it's horrible that something like this had to happen to you. But I I truly believe that there are people that are chosen. I don't know what that sounds like to to you. (laughs) But to where you're that person to carry that torch and share that message in a way that I believe Uh, the average person couldn't. So thank you very much for doing so and advocating and getting awareness out there for PTSD and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. All right. No problem. And uh, to the rest of yous out there, thank you so much for listening. Please mash that subscribe button because it allows me to get my reach out there and speak to more people, interesting people like Lori White. Until next time, you take care, be well, and love simply because you can.